0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Helping a human being come to their
1: own conclusion without ever giving them your opinion is the difference between organizing and mobilizing.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Something we've been exploring on the show recently is, one, of course, the election, but two, what does it mean to practice politics? What do you do to actually win power, and how does that differ from some of the things that feel like doing politics but maybe are not or maybe are not actually effective? I had a conversation recently with Eitan Hirsch, which I recommend listening, about political hobbyism. There's a lot of good theory in that. I don't think it was so sharp on practice, and that's one of the—, the Criticisms I got from some of you and I think I was correct. And so I wanted to have Jane McAlevey on the show, which was scheduled before, but really, I think, helps paired with that one. She is an organizer, an author and a scholar. She has done more labor union campaigns than I or probably even she can count, organize hundreds of thousands of workers. She's an incredible thinker and practitioner of how do you actually organize people? What does it mean to do that kind of persuasive, day-to-day, moment-to-moment, service-oriented politics? Um, she's a senior policy fellow at the University of California at Berkeley, and she has a new book out called A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for Democracy. And this conversation, it it's a bit long. <laughs> it's a bit long, and please don't be intimidated. It is an absolute gem. And it is sharp and clear. And we talk about the election and we talk about organizing and unions. And, you know, honestly, there's just a lot here that even if you're not trying to do politics, the specificity with which she thinks about how to persuade people to do things and what it means for you to be someone who does that, it will work in a lot of other parts of your life, too. So I love this conversation. I think you will, too. As always, my email is Kleinshow at Vox.com. Here is Jane McAlevey. Jane McAlevey, welcome to the podcast.
1: Great to be here. Thank you.
2: You have a line in your book, No Shortcuts, where you write that nothing produces deer in the headlights moments for activists in the United States like the question, what is your theory of power? So what's your theory of power?
1: My theory of power is, uh, I think, fairly simple, which is for all the rhetoric of the 99% versus the 1%, the truth is it's sort of right. But unless you have a theory of actually how to organize and then mobilize, build what I call unbreakable solidarity, with a tight, effective structure, saying the 99% versus the 1% matters not. So there's two things. One is for our side, for the side of people who are not the super elite, the super rich in the corporate class, it is, in fact, our large, num- our large numbers. That's like That's what our strategic advantage is. It's our large numbers as up against a tiny elite that has always ruled. The failure of the progressive movement or the left or something left of the center line is that very few people have a corollary theory of how do you actually how do you actually do it like how do you actually get and i'm going to say more like the 90% by the way not mm-hmm. the 99 i think it's more like my life experiences you can build to 90% unity across very diverse people without too much trouble actually once you know how to do it one so of,
2: one of the really important distinctions which you just kind of gestured at there you talk about the difference between Activism, mobilizing, and organizing, and I think it's going to be important in this conversation. So, could you could you run through
1: those? Yeah, definitely. It's a lot of what I tried to do in No Shortcuts, right? Which is which was my PhD dissertation. So it forced me a very late in life PhD dissertation after dropping out of college, by the way, to run campaigns. But it gave me the time to really sit down and try and think through what had been so wrong for much of my life, listening to people who I otherwise liked, but I thought had no effective theory of social change. So. What I try and outline in No Shortcuts is a few things. One is that there's the first level of sort of things that people might do or things that one could do would be like charity, right? So charity, a migrants arriving in this country— Maybe not in this country today, but actually I'm going to go there. A migrant arrived in this country, has very little. They go through a church or a a house of faith. They get something given to them. We try and help them set up a house. That's very, very good. Obviously, it's not a theory of change, but it's a good thing. The next thing that people can do in the how can I do something positive is what I outline as sort of advocacy And in the advocacy model, people aren't really central to the solution. You have lawyers, you have public opinion research, you have high-paid full-time staff in Washington, D.C. offices, or not even high-paid. By the way, I could say Greenpeace is an example of advocacy, right? Someone is concerned about the planet, it's burning down, species are going away, you write a check to Greenpeace, and they're going to take care of the problem for you. That's advocacy. Then you move to what I consider the great confusion of my adult life which is the difference between the next two rungs of potential change, which is what I think of as mobilizing, is the next rung, and then organizing. So I divide them between charity, advocacy, mobilizing, and organizing. And it's, it's the latter two that I think most of the progressive movement is deeply confused about. So when I describe mobilizing in No Shortcuts, what I'm trying to articulate is that mobilizing is essentially doing a very good job, a much better job than perhaps the people before you, at getting people off the couch who largely already agree with you. So in the mobilizing model, people are confused that they're doing what I think of as, and I'll describe it in a minute, as organizing because they're involving people. And they might be involving people in very large numbers. The problem or the limitation of the mobilizing approach is you're only talking to people who agree with you already. And so while it's effective to get them off the couch to a protest or even to the polls, the mobilization is of people who already have an opinion. Organizing, which I put the highest value on in my life work, is the process by which people come to change their opinions and change their views. It's about bringing more people into the universe that you can later then mobilize from Organizing is what I call base expansion, meaning it's expanding either the political or the societal basis from which you can then later mobilize. And organizing gets right to the question of the theory of change being a 99 to 1 or a 90 to 10, I think, more realistically. Organizing, in my view, and part of why I love trading and organizing so much, despite the many things that make me crazy about it, what I love about it is that very different than all other kinds of sort of activism, let's just say, in the U.S., trade union organizing puts you in direct contact every day with people who have no shared political values whatsoever. When you're a union organizer and you get a list of employees, ask me how later, but when you get a list of employees, let's say 1,000, I'll just stick you a simple number, 1,000 nurses in a hospital, And you've got to figure out how to build to 90% or greater unity and build unbreakable solidarity and a tight, effective structure with demonstrable supermajorities, just to get some of the ideas out. You're starting with people who have literally no shared political identity. They got a job, the employer hired them, they went to work one day. So every union campaign is like a mini cross-section of America. Um, And depending on where it plays out, it could be a a real mini cross-section, right, geographically, by sector, because different kinds of gendered sectors of the economy, right, I've tended to work in, but not always. But essentially, every single trade union unionization campaign or every strike or first contract or successor contract I've negotiated is frankly a walking experiment in how you build political unity, and what I call unbreakable solidarity in a time of intense polarization. I want to
2: hold on this distinction for a minute. Like you're you're out there in politics, you're working for the Bernie Sanders campaign or the Joe Biden campaign or the Donald Trump campaign. How do you know if what you are doing is you are mobilizing or you are organizing?
1: Are you only talking to the list that's in what they call the PDA right now, which is the technology of choice to go talk to previously registered voters on the door, for sake of argument? And I have to say, I am. Stay calm now. I'm so resistant sort of to the data-driven nature of how politics is happening right now. So the first question I ask every union I'm working with right now, for example, when I say to them, what's your theory of how to go from the picket lines to the polls? What's your theory of how are you going to move people from a worksite-placed identity? To a precinct-based identity, it's a radically different shift in how we think about their identity. So, how are you going to do it? And the first thing that people do is pull out the PDA, and they feel very excited because they've got this like PDA, electronic like
2: a like a gadget. smartphone.
1: You mean? Yeah, they yeah. pull out their phone, and it's got a an pre, Apple Newton. It's got you know, <laughs> it's got like a downloaded voter file in it. Yeah, that's what it is. Um, and this is how. Too much of the election work is happening right now, and I will put it back to Obama's data geeks blending into the Clinton data geeks blending into. Right, so it's good to geek out on some things, but not human nature as quite the way that we've reduced them to just voters in a tab, and we've done cross tabs on them based on what clothing they bought um, and, and twelve other things that we've migrated into what we think of as their voter profile that's in a phone that you hand to someone who's going to go door knock. So for starters, elections are fundamentally mobilizing. But if you're mobilizing, if you're doing. Election work in a routine manner like the one I just described to you, the first thing I say is, why are you going to go on the doors in that neighborhood and only talk to the people who are already registered to vote? When the biggest problem in america is who isn't registered to vote and how many people don't vote so the breakdown in in primary campaigns right now of the obsession of the two primary political parties focusing only on high propensity voters or the other big theory that came from the 2007 2008 obama campaign the first one was the idea of really going for low propensity voters and the world is just being sliced up now between low propensity voters high propensity voters and people just cut these numbers without much regard to what about everyone who isn't on your list? Why aren't we just knocking on every single door in the neighborhood? Why aren't we engaging in a face-to-face human conversation with people about first their self-interest and then how their self-interest collects up to the larger, broader interest? So if I'm a campaign
2: manager, isn't, isn't that simply a resource allocation question that I I wish I could. Right. I wish I had enough volunteers. I wish I had enough time. But I've only got a couple months. I've only got so many people. So I have to focus on the people who we seem likeliest to be able to turn over to our side and get out to vote.
1: Yeah. So that depends on your goals. Right. And the problem with most the problem with a a politically driven or politics driven movement is that it's got very short term narrow goals. Um, And if you're an organizer trying to change the world and how people think, um, what you're doing in the short term. And I'm not, believe me, I use data-driven tools, right? Obviously. So, but I put them in the context of the broader goals. So I think one of the biggest problems right now in this country is that so much money flows through the hands of political campaigns every four years and drops into states. And then it's just pull the money back out, hit the repeat button, repeat four years later. So we're not actually going in in an attempt to challenge or change or broaden or expand the ongoing views that ordinary people have in this country we're going in for like a tactical get them out once every four years to vote and then put them back to sleep that's not that is not transformative so again by its nature political campaigns are essentially mobilizing campaigns you can see rare moments with an obama maybe with a bernie sanders i mean f- for different reasons but you can see moments when someone who's been never involved and who never had a clear thought about who was to blame for the problems in their lives might actually be engaged in in a rare political campaign. But that's not the norm. The norm is we're talking to people who already have a sort of set of views. Tell
2: me what you thought happened on Super Tuesday. Because the Bernie Sanders campaign, when I talk to people there, when I talk to people who support it, they have an analysis that sounds at least superficially like yours, right? You have to organize. It's going to be an organizing-driven campaign. The Joe Biden campaign had nothing like that. And they had very few field organizers comparatively. They didn't have a theory of non-voters. And on Super Tuesday, they actually get more turnout and they get more of the new voters in the primary than the than the Sanders campaign, working basically off of an elite theory, of how to win power, right? They get these endorsements from Klobuchar and Buttigieg and Beto and so forth. When you look at what happened that day and how it layers onto theories of organizing, how do you analyze it?
1: Well, without knowing in detail what they've said or what whoever's explanation is, just going on sort of that broad stream, what's been sort of covered in the media, I would say a few things. My very first reaction, well, I have a lot of reactions to Super Tuesday, but trying to stick to this one point, my first reaction was that the Sanders team And the volunteers and the surrogates and people associated with the campaign—I don't mean the very whatever you might call the the apparatchiks at the top of the campaign—but but but that this sort of army of people that they have gotten to volunteer for them actually don't know how to make hard assessments or do get out the vote. So when I say make a hard assessment, if you've grown up in the social media climate, you're already in trouble in this country. Like people need to get off social media and shut their phones down and get out. And I seriously mean that. So like I feel very glad that I came of age before the you know, the age of small phones and social media because I spent a lot more of my time doing face-to-face work. And I'm sticking with it, by the way, (laughs) for a lot of reasons. But so a hard assessment is not... That you know, which if if you go on Twitter or you go on Facebook and people are constantly liking you, like you, you, first of all you're confused that everyone actually likes you, and second of all you have no idea what's going on in the real world because you're talking inside of a very much of a self-selecting, what I would call a self-selecting kind of bubble. So I think that they probably failed to understand how to do a hard assessment for two reasons. One, it's hard to do good training quickly on hard assessments, like when you walk up to a voter. What on is the a hard assessment? Yeah, hard assessment is instead of me just walking by you on the street and saying. Let's just imagine you have like a, a $15 yes pin on. And I walk at by you and I say, Sanders person, high five. And you high five and keep walking. And I just assume that you're going to be a Sanders voter. Like that's, a, that's, that's not even a real assessment, but that's a fast and too easy assessment that people make. If you're doing a hard assessment on the doors with somebody, meaning in a face-to-face conversation, you're going to set up a series of tests to know whether or not the quick yes they gave you is actually real and how real it is. So in every union organizing campaign that I've had the pleasure of running, which is now many, people who lose the campaign fail for a number of reasons. And the first is that they do weak assessments. They don't go back and actually engage that person and they don't continuously engage that person with what we call a series of structure tests. And these are buzzwords, although they weren't very well known until recently, but we do what's called a series of structure tests. So if I, if I get a yes Ezra, are you going to stand with your coworkers and be united and stand up for yourself, whatever issue you told me matters to you, and unite together to form a union? And you say yes to me once and walk away. And I don't ever go back to you and ask you that question five different ways and actually increase how I'm a- asking you to show me your answer, to show me the answer to that. Will you put your name on what we call a majority petition? Will you actually put yourself publicly into a much higher risk status of that assessment? So assessments are huge. The heart of the campaign, the more important the assessments are. And so I'm not going to just say, Ezra, it's great that you're willing to make the decision to stand with your coworkers and sign the union authorization card, because that's a private act that no one's going to know whether or not Ezra is actually serious. I'm going to actually do something else with you. Once you sign that union membership card, I'm going to say... The most important thing is that your coworkers understand, and your employer for that matter, but that your coworkers understand that you're ready to stand united with them to form the union. And here's what we call a majority petition, which simply says, "I'm prepared to vote yes for the union." Now you're going to have to put your name in a big signature line because I'm going to make that signature line as big as humanly possible for a reason. I'm going to make you sign your name really, really big on that piece of paper, and I'm going to show you what it's going to look like. And then, I'm going to ask you, by the way, at some point, which the Sanders campaign apparently I don't think knows how to do that well either, I'm going to do something called inoculation, which is I'm going to say, before I leave that conversation with you, when your manager sees your name on that poster, what do you think your manager is going to say to you? We'll come back to inoculation in a minute. But so that act of getting someone to not just sign a private card, but to sign what's going to be called a majority petition, we're going to make them feel as safe as we can. We're going to say, your name's not going to be shown until majority sign. Gets to some of the identity questions and majority and in group and out group that I think you like to think about, um, but I'm going to come back the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth time because what we know in a real life campaign is that the next person is going to talk to that worker as their manager. And the next person who's going to talk to that worker is Fox News. And the next person who's going to talk to that worker is their god or the person representing their god. And the next person who's going to talk to that worker may have very different opinions than that momentary impression I got when they agreed to sign in private a union authorization card to have a union election. So hard assessments mean you actually ask someone to take public risk with their assessment. And then you retest and retest and retest. And over a 45-day union election campaign, we might retest it five or six or seven times. And each time we're increasing the risk factor that we're asking the worker to take in conjunction with their co-workers, because it's the only way we know that it's a real assessment that they're gonna vote yes. When good union organizers have a practice that we um, engage in with each other when we have a union campaign, and this goes back to Texas and Bernie for real, which is we can't. We'll say, got a big national labor, labor relations election board election, like they're they're big, they're super high drama. There's almost nothing like them in my life. Um, if it's a big election with a lot of mm-hmm. workers at stake, and there's been a union buster hired to terrorize them and destroy them, we know generally within a vote or two what the exact vote count's gonna be, and we can do it by department. We'll say to the organizing team, especially to junior organizers, numbers in the box, put your name on it, put the yes and no margin. If you had turf in a certain department, put the yes or no margin on it. And then we're going to debrief those numbers when the real numbers come in. So part of how we know who's going to vote yes or no for a union is part of how the Sanders folks should have known who was going to vote yes or no or vote, which was the bigger issue. By a series of structured tests that they could have been engaging in with people so that they know reliably that that person is going to show up despite all odds and vote for Sanders versus whatever Amy Klobuchar or Buttigieg or their minister or someone tells them at that very last minute.
2: That makes a lot of sense to me. But but something you said earlier, I think, in my observation, and my reporting seems salient here, which is a lot of people thought they were doing organizing when they were doing mobilizing. Correct. And mobilizing relies on a conception of shared agreement that is already existing out there in the electorate or in whatever constituency you're trying to, to, to mobilize. And my experience of the Sanders campaign and Sanders supporters is that there is a belief in a wider zone of agreement and a disbelief in disagreement that can be a problem. And this is not to say anything pretty good about the Biden campaign, which I think almost skated by by If the Sanders campaign mobilized and that also creates counter mobilization, the Biden campaign basically didn't try to mobilize and just like let the wave of the Democratic Party sweep into it. And so... There seems to me to be a real distinction between what you have to do to mobilize and the personality type that requires the temperament, the strategies, um, versus what you have to do to organize and the personality type and strategy that requires. And I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that, because it seems to me not just in Sanders, but all over politics, I see this, and particularly on social media, as a huge problem.
1: So two things. One is, I do think there's a difference between mobilizing and organizing, for sure, and both the people who are... Effective activists, which is what I call mobilizers. Mm-hmm. Mobilizers tend to be activists. They're better engaging what I call the self-selected crowd of people who exist in some universe or bubble already versus organizers. And let me just say, I think that the personality of organizers, um, which you can test fairly quickly, like when I'm doing hiring, people are like, how I many get some good organizers? Well, you, you better hire well, right? There's a theory mm-hmm. that you hire, too. So, Yeah, what do you um, look for? Let me tell you what I'm looking for first. This is the point of it. It's really a point of it, and it's it's simple and deep. I am looking for people who genuinely believe that ordinary people have high intelligence and can think and that they really deeply respect just ordinary people. Like that's a – workers will see through that shit in five seconds. Excuse my language. Should I not be doing that? People will see through someone who doesn't really believe in them in about five seconds from their facial expressions. So one is – like I start out every day genuinely believing That people can make radical changes in how they think about and see the world. And if you don't think that and you don't – if you don't think that and also if you don't like respect why someone has the set of views they have and at least start there and be willing to work there with them even if they're fairly – different than my own, which almost every worker in a campaign I've worked on starts out with values that are, or at least immediate self-interest that seem pretty different than mine. But if you don't respect where they're coming from, what shaped them, how they got there, and deeply appreciate that, and then have a theory of how to help them shift from maybe having the wrong idea of who's to blame for the pain in their lives, like they might be blaming Mexican immigrants for selling their jobs instead of the CEOs of corporations that created trade rules that facilitated the departure of their job. Like, if you can't appreciate who that person is at that moment and look at them with what um, Paulo Fraley and Miles Harton, who shaped me a lot when I was young, when I worked at the Highlander Center, like, if you can't look at someone and imagine where they might be based on the fact that most people want to have clean water, a safe planet, a decent job nice neighbors and fairness, then you've got a problem to begin with. You're you're not going to be a good organizer if you don't genuinely love ordinary people. Like you have to kind of love them and respect them. And I think that's a big problem for a fair amount of the sort of like sectarian left is that I think people are trying to, I don't know if it comes from Marxist te- teleology now that I finally read it. I mean, the truth is, if, I'll have to tell you a fair, funny moment. My first year in the PhD program, which was 2010, right? So I'm organizing for 25 years, winning a lot of campaigns, helping hundreds of thousands of people at that point shift their lives in very material gain ways and has very little to do with material needs, by the way. And I don't know any of this lingo. So I started a PhD program just because I'm fighting cancer and I can't keep doing my work for a while in 2010. And in the very first class, it's like intro to sociology at the PhD level or the core canon. And we start with Marx. And, you know, I've never read a word of Marx At that point in my life, and not one person in the PhD graduate program I was in believed me. They were like, but you're this really successful trading organizer. Of course, you know Mark's inside and out. And I'm like, y'all need to get out of this building a lot. (laughs) Like... What Marx wrote is fascinating to me now in retrospect, but it has nothing to do with my capacity to respect ordinary people and help them come to understand who's really to blame for the pain in their lives and then take effective action to sort of do something about it, right? Like how do you actually change it? So one is helping them reorient their worldview by going through a whole series of questions with them, right, in a very effective one-to-one conversation that follows a series of steps that has very serious method and discipline and theory to it. And then helping them come to understand how they might change it, it's they're related but different. And I have met so many people who have contempt for the intelligence of ordinary people. And I just say to them, yeah, you might have good politics. You need to leave. you You won't last in this campaign for five minutes because workers will smell your contempt in five seconds.
2: Tell me about that moment when, assuming you do have that respect and you are talking to somebody. And you find yourself in true disagreement, right? What their view is of what the problem is or what the power structure is is just very different than what you think it should be. One of the things that struck me about your mobilizing organizing distinction has to do with how with what are the incentives around disagreement? Do you escalate or do you? somehow find a way to synthesize or get around it, what do you do when you find that disagreement? Or what do you do in different contexts, maybe against mobilizing and organizing when you run into that disagreement?
1: This really gets to a lot of method and discipline stuff. And as I frequently joke, my favorite topics are method and discipline. Um, Not really true. I mean, I talk about sports and other things. But anyway, when it comes to this work and like how to change the world, I actually think method and discipline matter. So so one of the core things that I... you
2: just define those first for people not familiar with...
1: Method? Literally, I mean, uh, what's my approach knocking on a door to a worker who I've never met? Mm -hmm. Am I just going to knock on the door and hope they answer and just be like, hey, Sally, how's it going today? Or do I actually have an entire approach of what I'm going to do when Sally opens the door? Or, by the way, her husband or her kid? or fill in the blank, or aunt or uncle, depending on what kind of household it is and what income strata they're in. So by method, I mean something replicable that you can teach that we can do over and over and over. That's a method, right? A method to the madness, method to the work. And discipline then is how seriously do we take it? Like literally, how serious are you about the method? So I do a lot of training of both rank and file worker leaders and of organizers. And When I say to them, so there's method. I'm going to run through organic leader identification. I'm going to run through how you come to understand who the most trusted, influential person is in the workplace as quickly as you can. There's a method to it. To do that, you have to be effective at what we call the six-step organizing conversation. And I'm going to come back to the six-step organizing conversation because I'm not going to get myself into a jam in the question you asked me because of the way I'm going to approach a conversation because I'm going to know where to go when when someone really disagrees with me based on a method I have, right? So, and so the discipline is how serious are you about it? And I'll come back to the method in a minute. But in this instance, I was just doing a training in uh, Europe with a bunch of German unions and I start my rap on method and discipline. And they say, well, ha- what do you mean by the discipline part? And I say, so if you work on a campaign team of mine, just for sake of argument, every single person has to do a weekly work plan It has to follow a certain format unless they have one better than mine, which occasionally they do. And that's great, but not often. So I teach people how to make work plans. Like half my life is like teaching young people how to like make a work plan. So you must submit a weekly work plan by five o'clock every Sunday. You have to write a new written wrap. That's literally one of the key things we have to move in the conversation this week in this campaign because we're reacting to whatever the employer is doing. We're getting ahead of them. We're pre-thinking the next move the employer is going to take in the campaign. Someone has to write a written wrap and be like, why do you have to write a written wrap in this campaign every Sunday at five? And I said, because it's going to make you better at talking and listening to every single work in the campaign. And um, What else do you have to do? You have to make sure that all your numbers on the structure test that you're working on are in the database by five o'clock on Sunday. So there's there's a And then on Monday morning, every single staff person is going to come into the room together. I'm going to have picked out the best written rap. Hopefully there was a best one. I'm going to have tweaked everyone else's individually. And the person who wrote it is going to model the best written rap. And everyone's going to work that rap in that room until we have it perfectly. And no one's leaving to go out and talk to workers until we can all wrap down the best rap. Like that's discipline that goes with a set of methods. Um, And I find in my life experience now in three books, when we do these things, we win. So that's method and discipline. So let's go back to the question you asked me, which was when I find myself in a conversation with someone who I have very different views than, if it's a purposeful conversation, not if I'm sitting at the bar, you know, or something or wherever or at a Oakland Raiders game in the old days before they left. I'm gonna start every conversation. That's an organizing conversation, and I'm gonna follow a series of steps. And the first step is a hello. It's called showtime. It's like being really enthusiastic, right? I mean, who wants to talk to someone who's not interested in talking to you? A lot of people miss that step, I'm just saying. <laughs> so, like, show enthusiasm for the person you don't know that you're about to talk to. And in that enthusiastic step one, I'm gonna tell them exactly why I'm there. There's no bullshitting, there's no beating around the bush, like I'm here because coworkers of yours called up and they're interested in figuring out how you can make things better in the workplace. That's it. Move on. Like I'm making a succinct statement. I'm being very honest about why I'm on your door and you don't know me and I don't know you. And the very next thing I'm gonna do with that person is I'm gonna ask them. If you could change three things at work tomorrow, what would they be? That is where I'm going as step two. And there's a reason for the method.
2: And you're going there fast.
1: And I'm going there fast. And I'm not asking, how was your day? I'm not asking, do you like your manager? Let me tell you what else I'm not asking. I'm not asking, are there issues in this place? What problems do you have? I could go through a long list of bad questions that people ask in that step until they learn through practice, through the method and discipline work what not to ask, because all of those answers are going to get me a whole bunch of crap I have no interest in. If I've got to talk to a thousand workers over the course of a couple of weeks, I got to have a method to do it and a theory and a practice. And if I get right to the question that I've learned, I get the best answers to and very quickly. I've never met anybody who didn't have an answer to at least what's one thing you want to change about work tomorrow. There's nothing ideological about that question. I'm not imposing any values when I ask that question. Just, hey, what are three things that you would change tomorrow at work if you could? By the way, when we move to doing the work, what I call whole worker organizing, which starts to blend their identities to things outside of work that comes later in the campaign, the very same question is very effective for me to understand what they think about outside of work. I will later ask them in a separate one-on-one, hey, if you were mayor, what are the first three things you'd do? Because the answer to that question is one that people have answers to also, and it's not muddled and muddied and doesn't get me opinions about what's going on in their neighborhood and a whole bunch of crap and who parks where, and I don't care. Like, I want to know if you were mayor, what are the first three things you would do? Because it's going to give me immediate insight into your human priorities. So same with the workplace question. And the reason why when I later find out that we may have very different political views, it doesn't really matter to me. It's because if I know the three things that matter most to you about the workplace that you want to change – I'm sticking with that conversation the whole way through it, and I'm going to help you understand who's in the way of fixing that problem and how only you and your coworkers can actually fix it, and I'm going to walk you through examples of how workers have done it who look just like you and are just like you elsewhere. So it doesn't matter to me in the short term that I have a disagreement with them. I'm going to start trying to help them understand. If, the, if a nurse says to me, God, I'm exhausted every day. I love my job so much. Um, I work in the neonatal intensive care unit. I work in the ICU. I work in wherever I work in. And I'm so frustrated that I can't get my job done. I just, we need more staff on the floors. I don't know if she's a Republican, a Libertarian, a Democrat, Green Party member, has never voted in her life, has never cared. I don't know the the answer to any of that. And when she tells me that, I'm off and running. Because the thing I'm going to ask her when I start to agitate is, given how much profit your employer had last year, why do you think you're working so short on the floors in the hospital when you're trying to take care of your patient? Like I'm going to get the whole point of organizing is I'm going to get her to start thinking about the answer to that question. I'm never going to tell her what the answer is. I'm going to just start framing a series of questions. They're going to help that nurse begin to understand why it is she works for a filthy rich employer and why it is she can't get her job done. That's that's the short term. And it's going to be pretty crystal clear. Like there isn't there aren't a lot of mitigating factors to why a nurse who's working for a very rich employer doesn't have enough staff on the floor. It's called greed.
2: This strikes me as a very difficult thing for a lot of people in politics because you get into politics and you have strong opinions on what is wrong and what the answers are. And you want to tell people what those opinions are. And if they think you're wrong, you want to argue them into why you're right. And what you're saying is that if you want to organize people, you may know where you want to get them, but telling them is never it's work. it's not going
1: to help. Ever. Like, never. Like, what do people not want to be uh, have done to them in this country? Be told something. Who wants to be told something? Like, I should go to the gym more often. Yeah, thanks for letting me know. Like, I already know that, by the way. Like, I should eat better food. Or actually, in my case, I eat pretty great food. But it's like, no one wants to be told anything. And being told things doesn't actually work, which is why I think that there can be a mismatch between... A lot of campaigns by sort of like progressives or left of center or like left, you know, again, these are mishmash categories in this country. But so much of what I experience people doing, especially in the activist mobilizing world, is just telling people stuff and kind of – I mean, you think about the proverbial – Um, like, a lot of left parties in this country who have spent a lot of time asking me why I've never been a member of any of their parties. And I, like, in the old days, I would start with, like, because you shove small, fine print newspapers in my hand with big opinions on them, and I could care less about it. Like, you don't tell people things, right? The beauty of organizing, and it's really real, is that people are smart. And so if you begin to ask them a series of questions that you have to sort of operate on on the fly, but there's, a set of frameworks: what the questions are that we ask, and that was a pretty simple one. I gave you an example of, right? I got a nurse. I mean, I outlined plenty in the new book, in "Collective Bargain," who, um, in fact, were at the beginning of the campaign, openly saying they were going to be Trump voters. For example, I was in Pennsylvania, swing state Pennsylvania, 2016. Right, it was a big year. So, 7,000 nurses. But if I if I reacted to someone wearing a MAGA button or a bumper sticker on a car I saw. That's not going to help me have a conversation with that person at all. And what I'm interested in doing is I believe most nurses are just flat good people, by the way. So helping them come to their own conclusion, like this is the key, helping a human being come to their own conclusion without ever giving them your opinion is the difference between organizing and mobilizing. It's like a series of steps in a conversation that begin to get a worker questioning why Does she never have enough staff so that she can fulfill her dream of doing the kind of nursing that she wants to, which is actually really taking care of her patients?
2: You said earlier in the conversation that if you've been on social media, you're already in a bad place on this. And is that because social media is simply an endless training in how to tell people what you think? (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's definitely one thing. I mean, my, you know, I I only joined Twitter a couple of years ago, and it's the only one I do. I do nothing else, and I'm about to get off of it because it's like my two-year mini experiment with Twitter. So one, it just means that you're not actually out engaging. You're not reading something interesting. You're not getting your own views challenged, and mostly in the world of if you care about making the world a better place, you're not achieving anything. I mean, in the the campaign in Philadelphia, I will say that one of the hardest conversations I had to have, and this was the difference between my pre-PhD years as an organizer and my post-PhD I met in 2015. I go right back into the field in a huge campaign. I actually had to get all the nurses shut their Facebook pages down. And it was a really hard conversation because they were like, what do you mean take? I'm like, I actually literally, I'm asking you nicely to close the whole page. Like we need to close the social media pages down in every hospital and in every unit. And the nurse was like, well, why? And I said, for two reasons. One, you actually need to be having face-to-face conversations with your coworkers. Like you're not going to have anyone overcome fear by banging away on social media late at night. And two, people would say things to me like, oh, But Jane, I reached out, looked at her Facebook page, and I sent her a bunch of leaflets last night on Facebook. And I'm like, that's great, but that's not actually engaging her in the way that she needs to be engaged. And you're wasting all this time at night, and you think you're doing something productive in the campaign, but it's not going to help that person actually shift their thinking. So getting them to shut down the Facebook pages was radical and super important early in the campaign. So to me, that's a metaphor for like we all need to sort of be shutting these things down. I read
2: a book years ago. um, This is back uh, as a business book, one of these ones that has one good point that could take about 800 words to explain. Yes. And it's called Fake Work. And the idea of the book was that people, particularly in modern businesses, are doing a huge amount of work that feels to them like work and sort of looks like work, you know, you're on Slack or you're, you know, on the Facebook pages or whatever, but it actually has nothing to do with the goals of the organization or of their own job. And so it's fake work. Um, it exhausts them. It takes up their time. It looks like work, but it actually is not work in the sense of being intentional, purposeful and productive. Right. And it sounds like you're saying that a lot of what people do in politics is fake politics. It looks like politics and it feels like politics and it takes a lot of time and it makes you tired. But it's not actually certainly not organizing.
1: That's right. It's certainly not organizing. Absolutely positively. Yeah.
2: And that seems like a like a hard lesson for people to learn. How do people react when you tell them you got to shut down the Facebook page?
1: You know, I think um, this gets to another key point about the work, which is when you have what we call a credible plan to win. Like when you actually can connect the issue that the worker just said to to what we call a credible plan to win. That's your ability to actually walk them through what it's going to take. And it's, oh, by the way, in a worker campaign, and this is true in general organizing, right, if our theory is how do we manifest the 99 to 1 kind of rhetoric, I'm always explaining to people a whole bunch of hard work that they're about to have to do, that also takes a bunch of risk um, in their work life. But if I can connect the issue that they just said to me, short staffing if you're a nurse, to a planned, what we call a plan to win I think most people, again, my life experience tells me, and and a little bit reinforced in the sociology PhD, but like my life experience tells me that most people, and it's probably true for you and I, we could listen to someone wrap down a plan to win a theory of a campaign, whether it's Sanders, Biden, Trump, whoever it is, wrap down a theory to win and, uh, you know, what's your plan to win? And then is it credible or not? Like we can, we can hear pretty quickly that's not going to work. You know what I mean? Like you're making a human reaction like that's not <laughs> – that may be a plan that someone just said to you, but that there's no credibility to that plan whatsoever. The theory that tons of young voters are going to come out in America um, in primaries, that's just not based on any reality. It's just based not in reality. There is no reality to like tons of young people coming out in the precursor, especially like in primaries, which are so specific and so like the hardened party voters kind of thing. So um, you can just you can just dismiss certain things, right? And workers are doing the same thing in every campaign, and someone's doing it on the doors to you, too. So if you can connect the issue that matter to you, and then you can articulate what I call not a plan to win, but a credible plan to win. That's crucial to people deciding that they're going to take all sorts of actions in a campaign.
2: But that's where the hard assessment gets hard, right? Because a lot of people hear a plan that fits with their beliefs about how the world should work. Yeah. And it sounds credible.
1: Yeah. I guess. Maybe. I mean, I I I
2: talk to a lot of people who run these campaigns and they always believe their plan is credible. And their plan always – I almost never hear people say to me, and I think about this all the time, that this is – what I value in the world. This is how I think the world should work. But because it doesn't work that way, we have to do this completely other plan. Yeah. Um, my, My colleague, Matt Iglesias, has this thing called the pundit's fallacy. Like, I believe this would be good. And thus, this is good politics. Right. And I just hear that all the time. And so the question a bit is, how do you get better at assessing that credibility? How do you get better at making that hard assessment where, You know, what you said earlier is true. As far as we know, nobody has ever managed to flood primaries with young voters at the level you would need to totally upend American politics. But every four years, somebody believes they're going to do it.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, again, this I mean... Part of why experience matters is because experience actually matters, right? I mean, reading things actually matters. Reading history matters. Like there's far too little reading of actual history that goes on, quite frankly, in this country too, that we know that, right? But I mean, experience is, a, is just a learned form of history, right? So the more experience I have as an organizer, the better I'm getting at it. It is a craft. The more experience I have, the more experience I have, the more I can, you know, I, we have, I, I always say to people, workers have a built-in bullshit meter like they just have it. And that's why I always say when I'm testing new staff in the theory of hiring, I got to the point where I I don't hire unless someone can do at least a one week sort of apprenticeship for a week before they have to make any decision. Because the people who are best going to help us understand if they're going to make it are actual workers that we send them to talk to. Because workers can smell really quickly if that person is taking them seriously or not. And taking someone seriously
0: matters a hell of a lot if you're trying to help change their views. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures. The assembly isn't what they said it was or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed, and it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B U R R O W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash box. Are presidential campaigns a place for
2: organizing or to have the kind of presidential campaign that a lot of people want to see? Do you need to have had. Organizing happening through structures and institutions for a long time before, such that there is a base on which to stand?
1: Yes. <laughs> Sorry, the latter. I know, it was, <laughs> I know it was a question, but I'm just jumping to the end. Yes. No, that's good. Yeah, I mean, of course. And that goes back to the thing I was mentioning earlier, which is sort of watching the cycle of every four years, having tons of money get thrown into states where people are very transactionally trying to just get one vote out of someone and then put them back to sleep. There's an analogy to it in the trade union movement as well, which is, by the way, not all that different. I mean, there's a practice in the work of people like spending an inordinate amount of time with workers up until they vote yes to unionize and then – you know at least in the case of one big union if not several big unions in the last two decades who shifted from organizing to mobilizing wrong direction you then pack up the bag of that entire team of organizers and move them away and send in a second team to help them try and fight for their first contract what we call the governing period so that doesn't work very well so there's parallels between what's going on the weaknesses that are emerging in our national politics are parallel to weaknesses in the trade union movement.
2: And do you think they're just, I mean, how much do you think they are just a reflection of weaknesses in the trade union movement? Because the trade union movement was such an important, such an important zone part. of power.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I do, look, the, the whole point of No Shortcuts was to explain um, that there is this thing called mobilizing, that it's very different than this thing called organizing, and that sadly, It used to be that the trade union movement did very deep organizing, really meaningful, really deep and serious organizing. And in the early 1970s, I put a pinpoint on it. In the early 1970s, we began to shift to more of a mobilizing approach and away from an organizing approach. And at the same time, by the way, the National Rifle Association, the Christian Coalition, the evangelical right – Phyllis Schlafly's organization um, reacting to the Equal Rights Amendment, like a whole deep set of organizations on the radical right begins to realize, oh, it's about organizing. And so this pivot happens where the forces that traditionally did really good organizing in this work, uh, organizing work in this country, shift to more of a mobilizing approach, which I call shortcuts, and not engaging in the really hard work of really rolling up your sleeves and having really hard conversations with people. And the, the right begins to understand... The value of organizing and of trying to reach people where they're at and not screaming at them and actually building institutions that are the institutions that I argue the pundits missed in 2016 that I also think they missed in the recent Super Tuesday with Biden. So there are pre-existing institutions. They exist. They're all over America. I know there's a theory there's a lot less of them and people are going into their homes and looking at their TVs and their phones. But by the way, while that's true, it's simultaneously true that there are a hell of a lot of people in this country who are still attending a house of faith. There are still 15 million people who are in trade unions. There are still a gazillion people going out on the weekend and watching their kid, if they're young, hit the soccer ball in the wrong direction and clapping and whatever we do it when we're watching the kids at the sports games, right? But it's like there still are a lot of social structures and institutions in this country. And Trump, when people were opining by September of 2016 uh, a point at which I was absolutely dead sure that Trump was winning. I mean, from June I had been because I was in England during Brexit, and that was a radical shift for my thinking. So, doing a training, doing training with some British unions. So. By September, you would hear, I won't name all the names, but you'd hear basically every pundit say, Hillary's got this because she's got the best ground staff. She has the best ground operation. She's got X number of staff in this state. The Trump operation has none. And for organizers like me, I'd be screaming, you know, into the radio, listening to it, saying there's a whole set of institutions on the ground that are not his staff, but that are working full time to get him elected. And you're missing what the base is right what were now. the most
2: important of those institutions?
1: Evangelical Church, for sure. National Rifle Association, not a bad second one. And then I think Americans for Prosperity. I mean, I think a lot of the, Koch, the more recent kind of Koch Brothers operations, Tea Party stuff is newer, and I think it's real. But I think the basis of the faith community and the basis of sort of the NRA's gun-toting community were very key on the ground. And by the way, with full-time staff – Uh, operations that were driving the Trump vote in 2016, that pundits simply missed. And I think this is true about what happened on Super Tuesday, too. I think when people say, Biden didn't even campaign. He didn't even have an operation on the ground in Alabama or, or South Carolina. Um, who does have an operation in South Carolina? The black church. Mm-hmm. Last I looked, it's a pretty serious organization. Despite the fact that there are less people sort of owning faith in modern America, the black church is an extraordinarily powerful organization. So if someone decides we're going to go for Biden the day before the vote, they have a really powerful relationship between the rank and file in most churches and the church leadership. So that's a massive mobilization operation that's already in place and ready to go. And I think we saw it on Super Tuesday.
2: You call this in the book structure-based organizing, and you talk about it as the the foundation of most of the great organizing victories in in American history. How do you do structure-based organizing? So if the way to think about organizing for a campaign or anything else is not you just put people out into the field and and get them to go knock on doors – It is to begin by identifying what are the structures already in their lives and hooking into them.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's if I was doing a political campaign. So let me just stick with a political campaign approach. But I mean, I basically say, particularly when I'm talking to activist groups, right, for whom this is a very tricky concept, like... There's so much misunderstanding right now going on in this country about how change happens. I'm laughing because I was in a meeting last week where I said something about structure-based organizing, and someone from a very activist-oriented group explained to me that actually— The group that they were part of, which was linked to Momentum, and it was some new theory of change, it was linked to the the Sunrise folks, this young activist in the room said, oh, no, Jane, there's a lot of structure. There's a lot of... I mean, people don't think, but there's like a lot of structure in our organization, which was literally two ships passing in the night. Like, structure in your organization has nothing to do with structure-based organizing. I just want to start there. That you have structure, which young people today hear as hierarchy or something, has nothing to do with structure-based organizing. So structure-based organizing means you are operating inside of an existing structure. So that could be a church, a mosque, a temple, a synagogue. It could be a workplace if the workplace still has sort of walls and a structure like a hospital does versus, you know, an Amazon delivery driver or something. Um, It could be Parent teacher associations. And I don't mean if you're a teacher union, I just mean if you're any union, right? Like all the I spent a lot of my life analyzing every single sub-institution that every worker is connected to in their lives, and then trying to figure out how how do you build what we call super majority support inside of a structure. And part of why I'm a big believer in structure-based the approach of structure-based organizing. I don't think it's all we need. I think it's important that we have what I call single-issue groups that are just like driving on an issue sometimes to like force us to deal with an issue. That's fine, right? Like we need Black Lives Matter. Like we need organizations that are not structure-based that are just driving a core important crisis going on, like at us all the time. But for actually making real change, like for actually expanding the base of people from who you can later mobilize, Structure-based organizing, to me, is a gift in several ways as an organizer who likes to win and teach people how to win. One is it allows me to assess every single day whether or not we're winning or losing in the campaign. If I've got 1,000 nurses in a hospital and we call a meeting one week and 50 come and we call a meeting the next week and 20 come, we know there's a problem. If we call a meeting and there's 50 one week and the next week 200 come, that's giving us an indication something is going right. On the other hand, by the way, if you're a real organizer, it matters who those 50 were, who the 200 are, and who got them there. Like every sub question also matters in the analysis of whether or not we're winning or losing. But so, structure based organizing in the workplace, right in the workplace setting, is the one that allows us to test can we rebuild solidarity? Can we rebuild human compassion? Can we build the kind of solidarity that's going to withstand union busting that's as strong as what Steve Bannon, Steve Miller, and sort of the White House team is doing to people when they try and rip you apart, right, intentionally? So structure-based organizing is is important for a couple of reasons. One is it usually gets you a bunch of people who are in the structure that they're in, not because they have a shared political value. That's most clear in the workplace. But secondly, and most importantly, it lets you figure out if what you're doing is when you're losing. And I think that we don't spend nearly enough time thinking about that in the progressive movement in the United States of America. Like, is what we're doing actually working? Is it actually winning? Or are we constantly losing? Because if we're constantly losing, we ought to be taking a deep examination of what's wrong. So structure-based organizing allows you to enable people to deepen the relationships they already have within a given structure. It allows you to understand the power structure analysis, keywords among and between everyone in the same structure, whether that's a synagogue, a mosque, or a workplace. And it allows you to then test whether or not the messages you're using and the actions you're taking are actually adding up to success or failure.
2: You talk in the book about how the core of organizing is raising people's expectations. Can, can you talk about why that is?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, this is uh, you know, uh, on the flip side of some of the weaknesses in the Sanders campaign, this is something I think that the candidate himself does quite well. So the first book I wrote was called Raising Expectations, and Verso added the Unraising Hell. I just wanted to call it Raising Expectations because the very first thing I think a good organizer learns is how to raise workers' expectations, that they deserve more let's get to what that means in a minute, but like that they actually deserve more and that they can actually have more, which are two different things. So most workers in the United States of America, if not the world, but I'm just going to stick to the U.S. for this. Most workers, when they go to work in this country, on a pretty regular basis are told they're stupid. They're either told it or, or it's messaged to them, right? Like, You've either got one manager who walks in and never gets the opinion of the frontline staff who actually do all the work and how the systems work and could actually make them better if someone just asked them. Maybe the person asks them once in a while and then throws the survey down on a drain. Or you've got a manager who doesn't even bother to ask and just is out there making a ton of decisions that are really bad based on no evidence and nothing. And so people just experience i must not be smart enough i don't occupy the corner office i'm not making a lot of money like everything about american cultural norms tells ordinary people that they're pretty stupid because we place value on rich people right why they voted for trump why they vote for these people like in this country the cultural norm is like if you're rich it means you're smart and you made it and if you're not rich it means you're dumb i mean that's that's what every messaging tells you in this country so why raising expectations matter so much as a concept is because most people are taught to believe that they're stupid, and they're not. And that's why you can't do real organizing if you actually believe they are stupid, right? So it's, raising
2: expectations here isn't just for what they should get, but how they should be listened to, how they should be involved, right? Absolutely. The power they should hold. It's about hold.
1: dignity. I mean, the thing that I've said to most people who misunderstand union organizing is they think it's about material gain, and it almost never is. It's about identity, and it's about respect, um, at the deepest level. I mean, I've run campaigns that led to contracts where workers won very little in the way of material gain, but won a hell of a lot um, in terms of reshaping who the employer had to listen to and why and the respect that they felt both from their team and their managers. And that could, people could be just as happy with that kind of contract as a contract where they won 30 percent raises over the first two years because they were so badly behind in a, in a newly formed wage scale. So... Um, So raising expectations is really fundamental to the work. If someone doesn't think that they deserve more, they're obviously not going to fight for more. So you have to start by having them understand that they actually don't deserve to never get any time with their grandkids, to work two full-time jobs, um, and still not be able to pay the rent, and watch their family sinking into an opioid crisis. Like, people have to believe that they deserve more to then imagine how to fight for more. In the six-step conversation I was describing to you earlier, in the second step where I've gotten the workers' issues, the expectation raising happens in that second step as we're agitating with them about why do you think it is the way it is? Like, why do you think you work short when your employer makes so much money? And then we start to, as we shift into step three, which is the credible plan to win and linking how that person can fix that issue if they get together with the majority of their coworkers and form unbreakable solidarity and build a really tight, effective workplace structure, that's all about raising their expectation. And you've got to do that before you're about to ask them to do something because someone who doesn't believe in their own worth or doesn't believe that there's any possibility of changing their current worth is going to be inactive. They're not going to be a voter. They're not going to be engaged. They're not they're going to sit home and and not be engaged. Tell
2: me about this distinction you made a minute ago between material self-interest and people's identity, their dignity. I think one of the most toxic Debates on the left is why do people vote against their self interest? Because every time I hear that line, what I hear is you telling somebody that they don't understand their own self interest. Exactly right. Like if you've ever said that, what it means is you don't understand how people are conceptualizing their self interest.
1: Yeah. But uh, I, complete, I think that, By the way, I completely agree. <laughs> it actually it makes, drives me a little crazy. Yeah, it makes me crazy. There's several things that make me yeah. crazy. That's one of them. Go
2: on. But, but well, talk a bit about that because I think that there is a view on the left that. Um, if you can just show people the arithmetic of how they will benefit from the policies they're going to vote for you and my sense of it and this is very much in my book and other things is that you have to connect this all to people's identity people don't want to be told they're going to get free stuff what they want to be they, that has to be connected to a narrative of their own dignity and purpose and agency and worth and so on and so how how do you stay on the right side of that how do you run a campaign that maybe has the same end goals in terms of policies and higher wages and so on But how do you know when you're running a campaign, again, uh, on this sort of like reductive material self-interest versus... Identity, dignity, et cetera.
1: Yeah. So, first of all, again, I completely agree with this. Secondly, I, I'd come to the conclusion some time ago, and I think it's still true. So, if you're looking for a different job someday, I think you'd actually be a good organizer. That's my general feeling. Um, I'm glad I passed the job interview yeah, here. Yeah. Yeah. Job security on the spot here, just in case this goes awry. Thank you, you know, it means yeah. A lot to there's me. union organizing is a very exciting uh, potential future. I so, actually wanted
2: to be an organizer when I was younger. I ended up. Um, and I actually I think th- it's magical work. I made the mistake of working on campaigns, and I hated it and went into journalism, and I do love journals but the thing I like about journalism is listening to people's problems and trying to find solutions. Right,
1: um, and that's right. People who are good journalists spend a lot of time listening. People who are good organizers spend a lot of time listening. Mm -hmm. Like way more time listening. I say it's 70-30. Some people say it's 80-20. I think it's about 70-30 is really the right percent. Like 70% of the time I'm listening in a conversation and 30% of the time I'm talking um, in the average sort of good one-to-one conversation. But let me just say two things. One is I'm a little worried about making just the broad generalizations um, at the left, because my my the left that I identify with does not make these mistakes, right? But I come from a trade union left. We define ourselves as sort of a tribe, and there are a lot of us, and we've almost never lost elections, no matter who the boss is, no matter who who they hire, no matter where they are. like We are a set of organizers who come from a tradition that I think is rooted in understanding that it's non-material needs that actually help people move more than material needs. So there's at least two different broad swaths out there. And like, I'm not even sure. How, people have always have to me like, you don't even call yourself a socialist. You don't even call yourself a leftist. Like people are constantly trying to pin me when I'm in certain left-ish environments. And I'm always like, that's the problem with you guys. Like it's just, it's, just it's, it's it's not interesting to me. Like what's interesting to me is, is the work you're doing actually adding up to something really meaningful and are people's lives being changed? That's what's interesting to me. So to stick to this point, I and when I got to grad school, it really hit me, like being around a bunch of professors with degrees in economics and fill in the blank, who would try to tell me about how, of course, materialism is what drives campaigns, and I'd be like, that's only because you've never knocked on enough doors to understand that that's not what motivated most of the hundreds of thousands of workers I've been engaged with to take action. It's dignity. It's their feelings. It's not just in group out group stuff. It's like literally being told that you're an idiot every day and the shift from being told that you're an idiot or your ideas aren't very good every day to shifting to believing that you actually have that you that i i've watched workers i'm doing it people can't see it so i'm gonna say it like i literally watch workers go from being slumped over in a conversation with me to sitting up straight in a conversation and if i can get a worker who's slumped over or distracted by their phone to focus on me and actually start sitting up in the conversation, I actually know right away that they're beginning to feel more a sense of self, like more a sense of dignity, more, I'm going to help dignify that person in every conversation I'm in, because that's what the step two agitation is about. When, again, just to, I mean, I could do any number, throw any example out of me, but like if a worker says to me, they don't have enough nurses to take care of their patients, and I'm going to start driving a whole series of steps of like, right, so how does that make you feel at the end of the day? How does it make you feel how does it make you feel? That word feel matters a lot. When you leave work and punch the clock at the end of the day, how does working short make you feel? And I'm going to let that nurse go on and on for a good 10 minutes about how it makes her feel horrible and that she didn't give the kind of care she wanted to give to her patient. And then I'm going to keep driving questions about why, if you know exactly what that patient and their family needed at that moment, did your employer make the decision to prevent you from doing that? That's sticking to her feelings and her sense of right and wrong and her sense of dignity. And I'm connecting it to an economic and political system that's not doing very well by healthcare in this country.
2: Something a, a political organizer once told me is that a lot of people, they don't feel they know that much about policy, but they know exactly who they are. Yeah, exactly. And so you have to stick to who they are, not assume that they're going to be motivated. People get very confused every time. When I talk to voters, the thing I hear most often when I'm doing my reporting is I don't know who to trust. If I'm asking them, I was actually just, I'm doing a piece right now that is breaking my heart about the social recession that's going to be caused by coronavirus. And I'm talking to elderly people who are going to be inside a lot. And one thing that I just keep hearing um, is I don't know who to trust. So I don't know what to do. So I'm just staying inside, right? I don't know who to trust. I don't know. I don't, there's so much conflicting information. But what they all know is what is happening to them. And they all know who they are and what their lives need. And a mistake, I think, that happens in politics, and to be very clear, I've been a policy reporter for, for a lot of my life. I, I write about policy. I care about these things. But I know it doesn't motivate on that level because the reason identity matters is people are all experts on their own identities, but they are not. They don't feel like they're experts on policy. So you have to stay in the place where they are the expert, not where they feel overmatched.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Positively. In fact, that's why, going back to the question of if there were three things that work, you would change smart, what would they be? Like... When people ask much deeper questions like, what would you want in your contract? If you could write your contract, what would it be? Like, even that, you're beginning to get out of the realm of what the person knows. If I say to a nurse, so tell me what it would feel like if this shift was properly staffed. What would you be able to do with your patients? So first I start with just her describing for me what she would do with her patient and her patient's family if she had the kind of time she wanted. And then I say, so draw that for me, like mapping out what's that look like, right? Because actually a nurse can draw what should happen in her unit. She actually has a sense of how many patients and families, like what that ratio should be. So she can actually draw that, and that's great because all I need her to do is Tell me how she feels, and then draw it out for me. Like how many people she thinks they need on that floor, how many assistants, how many certified nursing aides, how many nurses, how many techs. Just, just do a little map for me in your department on the day shift. And if I ask her to do that, that's all she has to do because when she comes to the next meeting, every other nurse in every other department is going to have drawn that same map. And actually, it turns out they could write hospital policy really, really well. And then they come; they they sort of realize when they come together in the big meeting wow, like they're actually really smart about hospital policy when they put their minds together across shifts and departments. So that's that's part of getting people to start standing up straight and realizing they actually do have a lot of intelligence, not just a lot of good feelings, right? So that's one thing. But second, I want to come back to what you said about trust. There's several concepts that I've been banging away at in all three of the books, and I'm just going to keep banging away at them until the day I die, whenever that happens, because they're just not well understood. And trust is an enormous one. So when I'm trying to teach people who want to learn to do organizing work the way I was taught, I say if you want – the difference between winning and losing, most hard union campaigns – and by the way, I could almost take out like most or hard or something because union campaigns – in the current legal environment and the social political environment we're in have been very hard my whole lifetime. They're just hard. Like if you're actually trying to help workers who don't have to union, unionize, it's hard as hell. So the first concept I have to try and get across to people is that in every workplace, there are a pre-existing set of what I called in their shortcuts, organic leaders. Some people use the word natural leaders. But I have to attach either organic or natural or informal or some word that goes before the word leader because leader means a bunch of things in our brains already, right? If you say leader, people think telegetic, articulate, speaks well, blah, blah, blah. And that's actually not what I mean at all. What I mean by the organic leader on every shift in every unit is simply the person who's the most trusted worker in that unit. Trust is the single most important value to understand and measure in a hard campaign. So... People all make so many mistakes all the time. They're like, that one, Jane. Like, I'll be at a meeting with someone. And they'll be like, some worker gets up and, like, makes a great speech in a meeting. And someone who doesn't actually understand the work will be like, that, Jesus, that, obviously, she's the leader. And I'm like, really? How do you know? Because giving a great speech has nothing to do with whether or not the majority of her coworkers trust her. And you're only going to know if she's actually a leader in the way that I mean, which is that her coworkers trust her, if you've spoken to... A majority for coworkers. And if when you ask the following question, they have the same name for you, which is when your manager comes to ask you to do something and you're not sure how to get the procedure done, what nurse do you turn to to ask for help? The answer to that question is like the $60 bazillion question and the answer to it that most people in the progressive movement, because they're born into a mobilizing approach, have no idea how to even get to. And so the main reason, I think, why union campaigns fail or succeed is do you understand how to identify the worker, the informal worker leader, the organic leader that most co-workers trust? Because most people, to your point in the interviews you're doing right now, most people, if they're watching social media or regular media, uh, have no idea who to trust. And in a structure-based environment, in a workplace where you see each other, in a big housing development, if you live in the same, if you're a tenant in a big building, um, if you go to Mosque Temple, synagogue church, faith, any place that you routinely come in contact with people for some reason, where you live, where you work, where you practice your faith, you start to develop trust in certain people based on actions that you see them take. And coming to understand who's the most trusted person is like this. Single biggest difference between winning and losing every hard-fought campaign I've ever run. And when you do what's called like false idea, when you when you pick the wrong person because someone shut up and volunteered a lot and this mismatch happens in nine- I'm gonna I'm gonna put it, I'm gonna throw like ninety percent of the progressive movement doesn't understand this concept, and I'm not kidding. Because what most of the progressive movement uses, um, and I was trained initially by sort of Alinsky-originated organizers when I was young doing community organizing work. And then I went into the environmental movement, and I had a different set of mentors. But like community-based organizing until I came back home to trade union work, which is sort of my family roots. But like in all of those theories of social change, people get called leaders based on what I call the commitment theory. So they shut up at four meetings, you call them a leader. Literally, that's that's the leadership ladder of almost every community-based organization in the United States of America. And fi- you know, fill in the blank. That could mean environmental justice. It could mean racial justice, whatever it is. Like, who people, so it's who
2: wants to be a leader, not necessarily who is a leader.
1: Not even who wants to. They don't want to be. They just show up at a bunch of things. It just means you're, you're, all you're measuring is their commitment, Got their it. commitment to the cause, which is radically different than who somebody trusts. Like, we have a really hard definition of what a leader is, and it's not a worker could have come to a meeting t- 12 or 12 in forming a union. They could have come 12 times. All that says to me is that they're an an activist. They believe in the cause. That's all it is. And they're committed to believing in the cause they believe in. But I have no idea, if I don't talk to that worker's co-workers, whether or not their co-workers actually trust that person. But the whole theory of the campaign is that we're going to set up a series of tests to teach us that right quick in the campaign. Because if we have that part wrong, we're going to lose. And if we have that part right, we're going to win. So trust is... Like, along with feelings, but like when it comes to who do people who do people listen to? who moves them in a conversation? It's who do they trust. And so coming to understand that we have methods called organic leader identification, like for how you learn to quickly assess who's the most trusted person in any given workplace, in any shift in any unit, then it's can you recruit that person? And by the way, in the u s. typical u s. workplace, the most trusted worker is almost never coming to a union meeting almost never, ever in my life showing up at union meetings. Why? They have a sense of their own power in the workplace. They've got a good relationship to their manager already because they tend to be very good workers and very responsible workers. So there's a whole set of reasons why there's this mismatch between the people the union organizer needs, the person that the workers, frankly, not the union organizer, but the person that the workers themselves need most to show up at meetings are the people who actually aren't showing up at the meetings. Um, and so how you find them, like there's all these different like Rubik's Cubes parts of the puzzle of how you can do this all very, very quickly, right, in order to build the kind of organization that can sustain the kind of blows that the employer is going to take to the workers in the course of that campaign. But but literally understanding who workers trust is the most important thing you can do in a highly polarized environment.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
1: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day.
2: So one of the things I've seen at the political level, and I don't know how much it's true at the union level, too, is that the great difficulty of organizing based on raising expectations is that the structures are so built against you that you often disappoint. So presidential campaigns are a good example of this, that Barack Obama, say, right, runs on changing American politics. Yeah. And there are a number of legislative successes over his presidency, but it is fundamentally demobilizing to see so many things fail. The Bernie Sanders movement, I worry this is going to happen to right now, that over two election cycles, there is a, a real increase in expectations in what kind of candidate was possible in American politics. And for him, well, the primary is not over yet, but if he loses now twice, that is very demobilizing. So so what do you do when you've raised people's expectations and then the structures they're trying to change have not yet been
1: changed. And so they are disappointed. I think it's such a good point. I feel like there's 10,000 important points that we could discuss. But um, it's such an important – it's another such an important one. So, again, back to structure-based organizing and what we call structure tests um, and why all the, these things matter and why I love trading and organizing despite many reasons to be frustrated on a daily basis with labor leadership is – in our work, let me just explain what's different about it and then come back to the broader point, that the broader question you're asking. In a trade union campaign where workers are trying to change the terms and conditions of the workplace, including how does their manager treat them, you know, fundamentally on the feeling, dignity side, let alone a raise or health care or whatever it is they want, part of what's so beautiful about doing, in particular, doing unionization Campaigns, which is most of what I've done, right? Helped workers who don't have a union form a new union. I like it for so many reasons it'd be hard to list, including that they have no bad practice yet, right? Because they're new at it. So there's no cultural practice that you're trying to undo, right? From a place where there's been a union for 30 years and it's not been very good and you've got to sort of like rejigger the whole place. But that's later. So part of what I love about doing unionization campaigns and then first contracts is and this is different than politics, but it's, it's one of the many reasons why I think political systems and political practices should learn from union practices. So we don't have a choice but to teach the workers that voting in the union is step one, and it's only step one, and you get nothing the day you win the union. You get nothing. Step two is building the organization that you built to win a hard-fought election into an even stronger organization. That's going to be the 90% or above unity to win what's going to become an even harder to win good first contract. So in the trade union work, when we do our work right, every worker learns from the very first campaign Voting in the union, as scary as it might be by election day, and believe me, dogs, armed guards, security, you know, fill in the blank of the gauntlet that workers have to walk through in this country just to cast a ballot in a National Labor Relations Board election. It is, you know, most people have no idea. That's part of why I keep writing books, too. Most Americans have no idea um, what workers are put through in this country when they try and do the simple act of forming a union. But so because if you're a good organizer, you're conveying... From the very first conversation with the worker, nothing is going to happen. Nothing is going to change that you and your coworkers don't lead, including winning the kind of changes that you want to win. Because in fact, there is no other way it's going to happen except by you manifesting supermajority unity and supermajority numbers and being ready to have a credible strike threat in this workplace. Like literally, if what the employer understands is power, you've got one source of it. My job is to help you understand how to build it to maximum power strength. And only when you and your coworkers take the steps needed to yourselves build an organization that's going to become structurally strong enough to make radical change in the first collective agreement or the first contract, that that messaging from the first part of the campaign, from the first conversation with the worker is so radically different than when a politician is raising expectations and people are taught in this country politics and policy is like you show up and vote every four years, right? That's the sad, unfortunate thing that most people, if they learn that at all, are taught about politics in America. In a union campaign, if you're a good organizer who has every intention of teaching the workers to build the kind of workplace that's strong enough to sustain the blows and make radical changes at work, then you're saying to them from day one, hey, I might, Jane McLevy, like you might think and now that I've written all these books and stuff, like people are like, oh, we got Jane in the campaign, like – disabuse yourself of the fact that this matters at all when it comes to contract talks. Because nothing I say across that bargaining table is going to mean squat. And what is going to matter, frankly, is whether or not the employer sees 95% of your signatures and your photos on a giant poster that's 12 feet by 12 feet that says, we're prepared to strike. Like nothing Nothing is going to matter to your employer that happens in this cute little negotiations contract room more than what you and your coworkers are willing to do. So the lesson that workers learn in a hard-fought union campaign is that, one, change only happens and they make it happen. They themselves have to make it happen. And two, voting for the union means nothing because nothing actually changes. You have to actually win the first contract.
2: Is there anything in politics that's analogous to the strike?
1: I mean, if you can get... 100%. If you can get 95% of more of your coworkers to vote together at the exact same time. I mean, by the way, part of what I learned about doing it out the vote. In political elections, which comes from like my I started running political campaigns, by the way, like my daughter of a politician. So I, like understanding how to count that counting mattered, that controversy, what, that nothing really matters what, unless you actually win the election. Right. That matters. Like counting actually matters. So
2: what parent was a politician and what what were they?
1: My father was a politician by the time I was born. Very successful in New York state. Uh, initially, you know, whatever like town council, I don't know, and then mayor, and then supervisor, and then there wasn't a county executive structure yet, but county executive in you know one of the mm-hmm. largest counties in the United States of America, just outside of New York City. So my whole childhood was shaped by one having fairly high expectations that politicians are good people. <laughs> Two, um, that I I think I don't appreciate until much later in my life what it meant for me to understand that our house. Several times a year was covered in maps with names and checklists. Um and this that, is
2: really in your blood.
1: It's really in my blood. Like yeah. maps
2: with names and checklists. Like that it, yeah. I, A lot of things you say. Yeah. You can, you can draw the line there.
1: Yeah. but And, you know, the funny thing is, as most youth do, uh, boy, are we arrogant we're young. I'm so glad I'm not anymore to some degree. But, like, I just remember, like, literally saying to people when I was in my 20s, just because I'm the daughter of a politician, that has nothing to do with, you know, why I have a better shot at winning or losing And It's like, oh, okay. And then you grow up, you know, you start realizing, like, I literally was dragged from campaign event to campaign event, picket line to picket line. I mean, he was a trade unionist turned politician put in by – Uh, the brothers in the building trades initially. Uh, My my family on that side is four generations in the building construction trades unions. And so politics was always like just deeply in the house. He was also a World War II fighter pilot down to the ace in the German theater. So he also has like a huge high risk gene. Pretty sure I got that. But so counting and risk taking were like really super important values, like in my childhood. So, you know, when people say, ah, I'm already seeing it right now. You can imagine why in in, in social media and stuff. Like, you know, well, it was a good fight anyway, and sometimes it's better to, and I'm like, that is such a bunch of crap. (laughs) I'm really sorry. Like, people learn to strike, for example, by watching other workers strike and win. People don't learn to go on strike because they watch workers strike and lose. Like, so back to the strike analogy, like counting really matters. So I started understanding that even things like election day voting, the only way to effectively do a really serious structure test and to build the kind of solidarity that we wanted to build when I was in Nevada running a campaign for a county commissioner, very, very crucial race for us in Clark County, Nevada, some years back, um, we actually asked every single worker by shift to show up together and march to the polling place and vote. Like that's an example of solidarity building and a structure test so that we actually knew which workers weren't showing up to vote before waiting to even figure out on the cross tabs if we had early voting in Nevada, which we did, you know, who voted that day when they told you they were going to or not when you look at the tabs that night. Right. Like you don't know how they voted, but if they voted yes or no, there's another way to do it, which is solidarity building, which is like, let's all go vote together. Let's all walk out of here together. Let's all drive in vans to our various political precincts. Let's build a precinct organization and ask everyone to meet at eight o'clock in the morning on the election day in your neighborhood and walk together to the polling station and vote. So I don't think there is anything quite like a strike going back to your original question, but I think that we can use what I'm trying to encourage in the three books I've now written uh, and in that one big opinion piece I wrote in The New York Times a couple of years ago is like there's a lot of lessons from trading and organizing that we in the political class would be very smart to learn about how do we build solidarity, how do we understand who the most trusted worker is, how do we get people to understand that nothing's changing unless they themselves are actually taking the action to make it happen. And that the vote is the first act you take, not the last. Like literally the election day is one in a series of actions that you as a human being will have to take in order to make the change in your life that you want to see happen. Like our conversations start and end with that. And that's completely different than a transactional, we want your vote once every four years political conversation.
2: So I've obviously been asking you to apply a lot of union lessons to politics, but I want to talk about unions specifically for a bit. And, And here's the question I want to ask, which is, Let's say we're talking in 2050, looking at a revitalized, much larger labor movement. What happened?
1: A lot of people learn the methods and disciplines of winning.
2: Do you do you need can you do it without legislative change? Do you need to pass yes. card check? No. Because you um, have a story in the book that's about you, you tell at some length the laws that got passed to make organizing harder and globalization, those are big structural things. Do you need big structural change? You can do it without that.
1: Yes and no. He, first thing is like the laws are structures, right? You say like you're just asking, do you need structural change? Um, by the way, it's incredibly helpful. I'm not going to issue like legal change. That helps a lot. On the other hand, if you look at who the United States Supreme Court is right now, and if you look at the entire federal judiciary and all the appointments that that McConnell and Trump have made right now, I'm trying to fast forward to 2050 based on the legal, the le- what's happening with the laws of the country as we move towards 2050. And we're going to have decades of incredibly conservative judiciaries going forward. There just isn't going to be a way to change many laws. So given that the campaign finance system is, people say to me, oh, well, if I'm giving a book talk or something, they'll say, oh, right, well, we just need to overturn Citizens United and then make politics fair and then people can vote again fairly. And I'm like, great, so wrap down for me how that's going to happen. Just explain to me how you're going to overturn Citizens United so that we can then have a better election system with today's Supreme Court. I just want to, like, the more, I like to just ask that question in the audience a lot. So the beautiful thing is, there is one thing that we get to do between now and 2050, no matter what, which is workers can have massive strikes and create the kind of crisis in the economy that forces a crisis in the political economy that leads to change. And last I looked, casual last hundred years of change in the United States, whether it was the civil rights movement or the trade union movement um, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s, which bled into the civil rights movement in the 40s, 50s, 60s, right? Every time that we have forced the kind of legal structural changes that you're raising that everyone wants right now, like we want changed laws, it took a hell of a lot of sacrifice and a lot of very serious unbreakable solidarity with effective structures, workplace, faith-based, community-based, to create crises, which enabled the political class to then have a change kind of forced on them, right? Whether it was FDR um, dealing with unions who are holding massive strikes in 33 and 34 that allowed the change in labor law in 1935 to create the National Labor Relations Act, or whether it was the tapes we now have of a Johnson talking to a Martin Luther King and saying, you're going to have to do something big down there. I don't want to imitate his Southern accent, but like, you're going to have to do something really big down there to make it you know, so that I can get these guys to change their mind. Right. So um, and that movie Selma was maybe the first time I ever saw like a Hollywood film that actually showed strategy for the first time. But so as a strategist, I mean, I I think more than anything, I consider myself at this point as someone who does a lot and thinks a lot about strategy, both at the small level and at a very big level. And In order to do strategy well, you have to understand power structure analysis really well. You have to understand power, how it moves, where it moves. You have to be able to measure how much their side has. How much do we have? If they do that, do they get more or less? If we do this, do we get more or less? And from there, you can sort of put together like serious strategy. But so I think it's going to happen because in the last two years in this country, more workers have walked off the job in illegal and legal strikes than has happened in my Sort of adult lifetime. I mean, technically, were more when I was a little girl, but I don't, can't say I I don't understand that. I didn't, I don't remember them. So, in my adult lifetime, more workers have walked off the job in the last two years in more unpredictable places than in my entire lifetime. Uh, and I think it matters a lot to watch what's happening with strike activity right now. And part of why learning the methods and being very disciplined at them matters so very much is the difference between winning and losing. And the thing I said a few minutes ago, which is. Workers aren't going to learn to sort of take the risk to walk off the job and go on strike unless and until they see other workers walking off the job and winning. And a lot of what we've seen in the last 2 years, not entirely, but a lot of it, is workers walking off the job and winning and not getting punished and not being murdered and not being jailed. Not yet. And believe me, I think the more strikes that happen, the more we're going to return to some that the risk factor is going to get higher, right? It always has been. If you're a black worker in the South and you walk off the job, you have a different risk factor than if you're a white nurse walking off the job in New York City, obviously, right? So it's like it's going to depend a little bit on, on space, sector, where you are, geography, et cetera. But the lesson that we're teaching people in trade union work, the core concept, going back to the theory of power, is that when 90% or more of you take this action together, they can't punish all of you because they need you to come in the next day and get the job done. Now, that also points to a question of strategy in terms of what workplaces, what sectors, et cetera. But if you go back to the 1930s and what led to the passage of the National Labor Relations Act in 1935 and then the Fair Labor Standards Act and then Social Security and a whole wave of things that most people have never even like cracked a book to try and figure out how do we win that stuff that we sort of took for granted for years what 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 had to happen before any of those laws changed was massive crisis being created by workers walking off the jar off the job in very large numbers. and i I want to put a pinpoint on this. I don't think all actions are created equally. So, like massive direct action, randomly done, let's say Zuccotti Park and Occupy Wall Street, has a completely different effect than All of the airline pilots in the United States deciding that they're not going to fly the planes or flight attendants deciding they're not going to board the planes and grounding um, the airline industry until their needs are met. Like there are strategic sectors, there are strategic workers under capitalism at any period of time for whom those workers have more structural and strategic power than others. And in the 1930s, we certainly knew that, and I think some of us know it today, too. And we're embedded in what we consider to be the high-priority sort of sectors of the economy, where workers in the United States can still exercise the kind of power that's going to lead to a stronger labor movement, and I hope a safer planet and a cleaner, healthier planet. Because if it's 2050 and the place hasn't blown up yet, it's because we did walk off the job in large numbers in this country and create a crisis for capitalism that's going to force huge structural change in the laws.
2: In terms of what it achieved, what has been the most impressive strike campaign to you in the last couple of years?
1: There's a lot of ways to answer it. But I would say just off the cuff, it's definitely the Los Angeles teachers in the strike that they led. And yeah, I mean, the Chicago teachers also very, very good. I mean, every time workers walk off the job in huge numbers, it's a big deal. I mean... Even if you have, as I write about in the new book, I start off by talking about a handful of smaller strikes. Most of my life in the healthcare field, I have not been part of huge strikes. I've been part of, like, can we get this thousand? Can we get this 800? Can we get these 3,000? Maybe can we get these 30,000 who work for 10 in or 8 share, one of the big healthcare companies? Like, can we get 30, you know. But a lot of it's been a lot of small strikes where, by the way, I watch workers learn the same lesson they win. <laughs> like if you can get 90% you know, they walk off the job in a strategic sector where the employer can't just easily get rid of them because they actually need them to show up and make a money the next day. Like you're going to win. Like the most basic lesson I was taught when I came into the trade union movement was McAlevey. And it's always like last names in our work, very gendered, very male still. McAlevey. If you can create a crisis for the employer, meaning if the workers can create a crisis for the employer, they're going to win. And if they can't, they're going to lose. Like that's a very straightforward proposition that my life experience tells me is true. So the Los Angeles strike was so extraordinary for so many reasons, so many reasons, both uh, that it was 100% 100 out, like 100% of 900 different schools with a workforce that's been told not only were they stupid, but they were the they were the they were the blame of the failure of public education in America. Like there's been 20 years of messaging from waiting for Superman to fill in the blank that, you know, that schools were failing because of teachers and teachers' unions specifically, right? So to like to like build the kind of huge public solidarity and support that they built, where there were the ratio is at least one for one. Like every day there was at least one you know, parent walking on picket lines with those teachers because there were sixty-five to 70,000 people by police estimates every day in downtown Los Angeles during the strike. And there's only 33,000 of the teachers. And this was in pouring rain as someone who I think hails a little bit from Southern California. You know what that means, right? I, I keep trying to have a fantasy in my mind about like what if they had had LA weather for the six days of that strike, what it would have looked like, right? They had pouring, teeming down some of the heaviest rain I've ever seen in California. And still they had sixty-five to 70,000 people every day on the streets supporting a call for dignity um, and fairness and better public schools for kids.
2: And what did they win?
1: They won so many things. You know, starting with the single most important fight for every educator going into that campaign was on class sizes and was the ratio, not very different than the nurses I spent my life working with, right, was the ratio of how many students there are to the classroom. And breaking something called Section 1.5, it's very nebulous, but really it was about the question of, you know, almost every longtime teacher can tell you that they used to have about one to 17, you know, one of them to about 17 kids, one of them to about 20 kids. And in Los Angeles and in grotesquely underfunded Public education system, the fine state of California, where we are 47th in the nation compared to the rest of the country, you've typically got one teacher to 45 kids with no assistant. So the single biggest issue was they won structural reductions in the number of students per teacher. Uh, No one's won that in a very long time, like in a very, very long time. That's just like winning nurse-to-patient ratios. It's a very, very hard thing to win. So first of all, they did that. They set out to, 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 to make public education better by creating the idea that students deserve a better learning environment. And it starts with how many students are in the room. Then they made victories on mandatory testing, greatly reducing the number of mandatory tests they have to do versus actually teaching. Then they won on an extraordinary set of victories that were not sort of traditional contract claims. Um, They negotiated for a fund in the district that the district is administering and has to help pay for to keep ICE agents off campus and to create a legal defense fund to get parents, right, because parents are actually being (laughs) separated from their children in this country in this moment when they dropped their kids off at school. So they won. There's like no history of like winning an ICE defense fund, defending immigrant rights on the part of a bunch of, you know, teacher union won the right to create an immigrant defense fund as part of their contract. They won something like a mini Green New Deal that says that did an analysis that they're actually doing more of now. It's phase two of it. Analyzing every single public school kid in Los Angeles who has no green space to play on and or no place outdoors to go play when the bell rings and it's time for their break. And first of all, it's getting them to have breaks is part of it. But then it's actually getting it, making it so that they have green, literally green. I mean, I could just go on and on and on, but there were, there were more victories produced in that one strike. And I've, you know, I'm still still running campaigns, but now I'm like – now I alternate between running a big campaign and then writing about it and running a big campaign and then writing about it. And I've been – because I've been – because of the PhD and because of like finally slowing down enough to like look at other people's work, I can analyze a lot of strike victories in the last – I can probably analyze almost all of them in the last two years. But I can analyze a lot over time and I can tell you that what the Los Angeles teachers achieved by being – super intensely relational, connected to the parents and the broader community, paid off um, in a very big way for parents themselves, for the students and for the teachers, and I think for all of Los Angeles.
2: Can can you focus on that relational dimension? Because one of the very effective ways strikes get stopped or broken, particularly in strategic sectors uh, of the kind you're talking about, is that if you do this, you'll be hurting the people you care about, right? These kids will not go to school. If you're a pilot, people will not be able to fly. And so on the one hand, these are strategic sectors where they have a lot of power. But on the other hand, precisely because they're good people, they don't want to hurt the very people they're trying to help. And that's always a very powerful lever um, and way of breaking solidarity around a strike. So how are they able to build those relationships such that the public didn't get turned against them and they didn't feel like what they were going to do was going to be at odds with the people they cared about?
1: So a few things. Um Almost my entire life in the trade union movement, I've been working with what I call mission-driven workers, mm-hmm. which means they are particularly vulnerable, right? To when the employer says you're going to hurt your patients, you're going to hurt your students, you're going to hurt the single parents, you're going to hurt the parents, you're going to on and on on. With the immediate workers, p- people are stretched so thin at this point in this country that I don't. It's not that far a leap to say to them, nothing is ever going to change unless you and your coworkers stand up for yourselves right now. So, are you prepared to work for the next thirty years? short-staffed and feeling like you've left a war zone every single time you punch out of the emergency room from your hospital? Or do you want to, for a few days, take the kind of action that's going to actually change the kind of care that's being delivered to your patients for the rest of your life? Like, and by the way, framing the hard choice is a method, a sub-method within a conversation. Like, literally, how do you frame a hard choice to a worker when the boss is saying, when the employer is saying to them, usually with the skillful aid of a professional union-busting consultant? you're going to hurt your patients, right? So knowing how to actually do what's called framing the hard choice for a worker and saying, I hear you, Sally. It is definitely not going to be, like I started doing work with the nursing home workers years ago. And that's really, the relationship's really intense because when they walk out, you know, different than a hospital, right? I mean, there's different people who come into a hospital in and out every day. In a nursing home, the relationship is particularly incredible between the certified nurse's aides and between the patients that they care for. And they will actually suffer a little bit when a scab or a strike-breaking person's brought into that facility because, you know, especially if you're older, if you're dementia, whatever you are, like, you, like your caregiver really matters to you, mm-hmm. right? So it's really hard for them. But I think that the simple choices, it's not going to change tell me how else it's going to change tell me how it's going to change so that you can give the kind of care to the patients that you have if you don't actually walk off the job right down and fix it and going back to the credible plan to win by the way you're only going to be able to fix it if it's 90% or more of you so like all of these things actually matter if 60% of the workers walk off the job they're not going to win so teaching power to people is like part of the conversation so so one is you do a lot of what's called inoculation, which I mentioned earlier. Like when I say, Sally, when your manager sees your name on that petition demanding better staffing ratios, what do you think that manager is going to say to you? Or when she sees, more importantly later on in the campaign, when she sees your signature and your face on what we call a majority photo poster with thousands of pictures on it saying, I'm ready to strike if I have to. I don't want to, but I'm ready to. Like That's very important messaging in striking in the mission-driven sectors, right? Like No one wants to strike. No one does want... Okay, I, I lied. Five sectarians want to strike endlessly or something. But like. Most workers have no interest in going on strike, none, for any number of reasons. It's a hard thing to do, whether or not they're walking away from patients or not. If they're a driver, they're not hurt in their car, but, you know, whatever. Like, so you get the idea. So one is we do a lot of inoculation. We do a lot of, like, what do you think management's going to say to you when they see your face on the poster that says, I'm ready to strike if I have to, even though I don't want to, um, and talking them through it. You know, the first thing the employer's going to say to you is you're going to be hurting your patients. Yeah, they are going to say that, right? And then you work it through. Like you actually actually have to spend time to work through that conversation with them. And then you say, the truth is it might be, but actually what, what you've told me for the last three months in this campaign is that every single day at work, you're hurting a patient because they're not getting the attention they need. So do you want to fix that or not, right? That's framing the hard choice and inoculation at once. But then the second thing that really matters in terms of Los Angeles is that they did something that a lot of unions can't imagine, let alone actually do. Um, Which is that when they were preparing for the contract talks that led to that extraordinary strike and that extraordinary contract settlement, they did regional, area-based geographic meetings inside of the Los Angeles Unified School District and invited all parents by district to come and have a say in what they thought the workers should try and fight for in the contract. And they actually got several of the ideas that I listed to as victories directly from the parents. So the idea of winning an ICE, an immigrant defense fund, the idea of bargaining for what we call a sort of mini Green New Deal, like these ideas. And then one, I should say, because it's extraordinary victory that, you know, again, there's a lot of them, was banning random searches, which we know are not random in public schools. Like, there's nothing random about public searches. Look at any of the statistics; it's like 90% black kids or brown, depending on your school, and it's sure as hell not the white kids. So, they won a ban on so-called random searches, which then they wanted in, in in a in a pilot number of schools. And within weeks, the whole community had their expectations raised that they could actually end it everywhere right away and forced and jammed the victory, riding off the strike with the teachers' union helping them into a school board meeting and just banned random searches in all of LA schools. Like that is going to itself slow down the school-to-prison pipeline in measurable ways. So that idea came From the teachers union doing something as unconventional as holding open contract discussions with parents and actually driving parents to come to meetings to both learn about what the issues were that the teachers were going to fight for. So education, sharing information, and then actually asking them if they could get something in the contract, what would it be? And then actually taking it serious enough to put it into the contract fight and then hold on to it through the strike to actually win on the issues that the parents wanted in that contract, and they did that, and that's part of why it's such a magnificent strike.
2: Before we end here, I want to ask you about two legislative changes, which I know you said are not necessary but could potentially be helpful. So in 08, the Democrats used to talk a lot about car check. Then Obama got elected and Democrats had majorities, and they didn't actually push it. But there's car check out there, and then the idea that has been in a lot of plans this year has been moving to sectoral bargaining. Can you talk a bit about what those two ideas are and if you think either of them would be a really big deal of past?
1: Yes, I can talk about both of them.
2: (laughs) (laughs) People can't see, but there's a real (laughs) catty-the-canary grin happening here (laughs) on this somewhat boring question.
1: Two of my favorite topics, (laughs) (laughs) besides method and discipline and leader identification and structure tests. Um, Yeah. So card check, what we call card check, was the illuminating idea of the 2007-2008 cycle. And as someone who was the head of a statewide, very large union in one of our unions called the Service Employees International Union, I was a leader in a swing state called Nevada in a very important year, which was the first year that Nevada had an early state caucus to bring the Latino uh, vote in. By the way, if people haven't noticed this, just another good reason why every liberal who thinks that they don't like unions should support them is, Nevada, you know, is the only state that's trending completely opposite of every other state and went from red to a little bit blue to mixed blue to purple to blue, 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 because we built a hell of a lot of strong unions in that state in the last two decades, just to put a point on how change happens in yeah, this country. Yeah, the
2: demographics of Nevada and Texas are not that different, but their politics have been. and. And it's one is
1: right. And that's a, a very I mean what we know we we know historically that two institutions historically influence working class votes. That's the church and that's unions. Um, so without any unions, look who people are voting for. I'm just saying. So, so back to Nevada and back to that moment. So there I am. I'm the leader of the union in state of Nevada. It's very intense political climate in an early state uh, swing state. And the leadership of the union I work for And the whole labor movement, to be honest, the AFL, CIO, everybody, what's the National Labor Federation um, in this country, is making one demand on whatever candidate, you know, as we're going through the endorsement process. Like, one central thing everyone across the country has to ask is, what's your position on something called, what they say is EFCA, which is the Employee Free Choice Act, of which this thing called card check is a crucial concept. And card check means that when a majority of workers sign a union membership authorizing a union... 50% plus one of them, they could just have a union with no election. That's the nut of what card check means. But it was always talked about as EFCA, which I always said sounded more like a sort of bad, virulent social disease or something or some kind of disease you might get in your body than any kind of public policy that someone would stand up and be, you know, clapping for. But even what it was made little sense to me as an organizer versus a mobilizer or an activist to articulate why American workers need something called Card check means you have to spend an incredible amount of time explaining why elections don't work. Now, on its face, that's complicated. I mean, people in 2020 are becoming skeptical about the sort of validity of elections right now. I think that's a really bad thing, and I think the evidence is that elections are mostly very sound. So the people who are driving doubt about whether or not elections work in the civil arena tend to be people who are— right-wing and fear-mongering and trying to get people to not have faith in the one thing that equates to democracy in people's minds, which is pulling a lever um, on on election day in a voting booth. So the first thing that was wrong with card check, and just because it was being elevated in 2007 and 2008 in that electoral cycle, for those of us in this work, card check has been something we've been demanding forever, but you don't need a law for it. Like as it is right now, Car check is the law of the land. I mean, if I could convince an employer to like y- you can get a union certified today, right now, since 1935. You can do what's called certifying a union by the employer counting 50% plus one of on the cards, I certify the union. Now, do they do that? Hell, hell no, right? They hire union busters, they terrorize the workers, they create a polarized mini United States in every work United States in February 2020 in every workplace, right? But so um so car check has existed for a long time. But the idea that it would become the number one political priority of the American labor movement in 2007, an idea that runs sort of afoul of what most people think of as the basic right of democracy, which is that people get to go into a voting booth and anonymously make their selection, made zero sense to me as an organizer. It still does. I want to say that. It makes no sense to me. Like, the point is to make the election process fair and then let people vote. By secret ballot, right? The, the basic idea of a secret ballot election is like baked into the cultural norms in this country. And so trying to argue for something that isn't a secret ballot election process, and trying to make that case to the 98% of America who has no idea what goes on in a union election was just bad strat just bad strategy. So that's what I think about card check, still bad strategy. Sectoral bargaining, which is the sort of ice cream flavor of the year or the ice cream flavor idea of the year right now, to me is similar and different in the sense. So let's say what it means, first of all. Sectoral bargaining means essentially if you were a nurse, I'll just stick to the topic I've been talking about. If you're a nurse and you have a union union. Right now, you go to the bargaining table either against your local hospital or if you're in a big system, which many of them are, and if you're smart like us, you're organizing people in the big systems, you might go to the table with a bunch of nurses from the same hospital employer across a bunch of states. But when you go, you're going to be bargaining for what wages a nurse deserves. We hope how many patients there are on the floor, given the kind of floor it is, whatever it is. But the only people being affected are the nurses who actually have the union, who are going to live under the contract that you're going to pass. So the idea of sectoral bargaining means that whoever goes to the negotiating table is actually making an agreement for every single nurse in the United States of America. You could think of that as like a contract extender. And we have contract extenders um, already in this country, just like we already have the right to card check. It's that it's very hard to implement them because power is skewed so badly right now against ordinary people and in favor of corporations. That's just like we're in our 1929, 1930, 31 level of income inequality because we're at the same level of power inequality between the super rich and workers. So, sectoral bargaining is sort of the hot idea of this election cycle. Every candidate was asked by most unions, will you support sectoral bargaining? And it isn't just sub- sectoral bargaining. It's like the idea of the German model. It's sort of what people think of in shorthand in the trade union movement as the German model, which means Elizabeth Warren famously had the the, the Fair the the, Accountability Act... Capitalism. The, accountab-
2: the Accountable Capitalism yes, Act, I think you. it was. thank you. That code was determination natural. yeah. <laughs> yeah, if
1: I can't remember it, that's not good. But anyway, that um, was sort of codified, what we think <laughs> of as the German model. Uh, Sanders has something similar, right? But all the candidates were asked whether well, you sort of support sectoral bargaining. And again, it's like it's not, It's a fine idea. It's like it's less culturally complicated to understand than why workers shouldn't have a secret ballot election, which to me is just a loser. It's just, it's just a loser idea. But sectoral bargaining is a fine idea. There's two problems. It's like saying you want Citizens United to be overturned. One, how in today's climate are you going to win sectoral bargaining? That's just one question. And two, my experience, since I've been doing a lot of work in Europe, which is very helpful for this particular discussion, basically all European workers have some form of sectoral bargaining already. And what's happening throughout Europe is that workers are also going backwards very, very fast for the same reason they are in the United States of America. Which is that unless and until workers in very large numbers have built the kind of solidarity and unity that can create the kind of crisis a strike creates, nothing matters about the structure of the law you have. So just to hammer this one home with one example, I've particularly been doing a lot of work in Germany for the last year. My second book, No Shortcuts, was translated into German. It was translated in time to be released to a mass audience for a 3,000 worker across Union strike conference about rebuilding the strike muscle in Germany. Turns out they haven't been doing a lot of strikes either, just like in the United States. And what i learned in very in a short version of could be a long long discussion just about what's going on in germany where the nazis are actually entering the plants and contesting for works council elections that's part of the german model these little works councils so care for what you're asking for but what i've learned by spending a lot of time in germany is just because you have a sectoral bargaining doesn't mean things are better like you actually have to do the hard work and what i hear in the demands by the national labor leadership sometimes are shortcuts. And you might know that I wrote a book called No Shortcuts. So I think sectoral bargaining is like a, it's a fine idea, but if you're not actually doing the hard work of helping workers build strong organizations, city by city, employer by employer, strategic geography by strategic geography across this country, it isn't going to matter in the end because in Germany it's not. When the wall fell in 1989, I've now come to learn through all of my intense work, on the Polish-German border were the AFD, which is the semi-Nazi-like party. What I've learned after a lot of time in Jena on the Polish-German border for last year with trading organizers is that despite the myth of the German model that everyone here just thinks is this great, perfect kind of model, since 1989, the German Union's have never yet been able to close the 30 to 40% wage differential of what workers in the former East made to workers in the former West. And so you say to yourself, well, huh, let's talk more about sectoral bargaining. How is it that they've been going to sectoral bargaining tables for, what are we up to now? I'm bad at math. You're better at math. Aren't you? Do you have math in your family? 30 years or 40 years? I do have a math in my family, actually. 30 years or 40 years? Anyway, 1990. (laughs) I have to do. I count out loud. That's how bad I'm at math. I hire contract costers when I'm at the negotiating table. By the way, I would never (laughs) want any worker to trust my math, except I can do percentages really well. But so from waiting tables. But so, you know, the fact that they have a re-rise of the Nazi right wing happening in Germany, and that the message that the Nazis are running in the plants is the unions have failed you, the state has failed you, we're the only people who can actually fix what the wages for Germans should be. Germans, very key language in there for Germans and who their idea of who a German is, of course. But, um, you know, I grew up like in a Jewish... Anyway, it's a little complicated. But like the idea of even being in Germany was sort of terrifying for me. And now being on the Polish-German border um, and spending a lot of time there is super intense. But like. Sectoral bargaining hasn't solved that problem. Neither have works councils, neither have any of the pre-existing structures that exist in Europe because the workers are too weak. They actually don't have enough power because they haven't showed that they can go on strike in Germany and mass numbers and cripple the economy for so long that they're begging at the sectoral bargaining table, which is no different than the begging that we do here. And to stop begging means you better get better at the method and the discipline of learning how to teach workers how to build unbreakable human solidarity and a very tight, effective structure and use that power so that we might stand the chance of having a 2050 that looks good in the United States of America.
2: Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't?
1: Oh my God, we have so many topics to cover still. But none that are <laughs> more of a part no, two. <laughs> no. None that are short. Well, I mean, I want to have a really deep di- I have to go read your book and then read and we have to come back and have a really deep discussion about the methods and disciplines around identity creation. I would that we love engage in. Let's
2: do that. I would love to do that. Um so then let me ask you the question while I used to end, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend?
1: Oh, yeah. That's right. I was warned about that. Um, let's see. The the I think the one I came away from gra- my grad school years with, that's the most reading I ever did, really, was grad school. Running campaign time, I just pass out and fall asleep on the bed after 20 hours a day. But um, the one of the books that really blew my mind was Charles Payne's I've Got the Light of Freedom. If you don't know it, it's an extraordinary book. It's a...
2: I Got the Light of Freedom?
1: I've Got the Light of Freedom. It's a it's a deep dive into the civil rights movement. It's a different kind of deep dive. And it goes into the... It go, essentially... It's organizing versus mobilizing in the Deep South. It's like a different, long, slow version of how we won the civil rights that we think we won in a couple of laws and a couple of marches in the Pettus Bridge. So it's an extraordinary book that begins with a whole chapter <laughs> that's nothing. But they took the NAACP. I, I learned more of the history of the NAACP by reading this book, too. So It's a thick book, but it's so worth a read. And the whole beginning of the book is a methodical listing of the lynchings um, state by state that were going on parallel um, to the deeper work that sort of began the Civil Rights Movement. Just to, just like when people say, "Say oh, things are so hard out there. I'm like, grow up. Jesus, you know, people were being killed routinely in the early trade union days, and I mean less than 100 years ago, and in the Civil Rights Movement. So that's one book. I mean, I am um, a sucker for Snyder's The Rules Against Tyranny book that I quote in the beginning of my new book, right, where he actually says, you know, pick an institution, they fall. Institutions fall unless they are defended. Pick an institution, a court, a newspaper, a union. Like the fact that that guy put union in there made me love him for the rest of my life because most liberals just write the word union out of the entire storyline. Like, yes, unions matter as much as a free press. And a free judiciary, by the way, last I looked, because we level power in the economic arena, which under capitalism is fundamental. And that's the conversation I want to have. Like with your political science head on and the literature that people look at in political science, which is divorced from the capitalist economy, like to me that's that's like a major future conversation too, potentially. And then the third book is one I just just read um, and totally enjoyed, which was Astrid Taylor's new book, uh, also a title that's hard, but the title's so great, even the way they designed it on the cover, right? It's like, this may not be democracy, we may not have democracy, but you'll miss it when it's gone.
2: Democracy may not yes, exist. exist, but you'll, you'll miss, miss it when it's, when it's gone. gone. Um, we'll miss it when it's gone. She's yeah. been on the show, and we had a great she conversation. Has. She's she will, wonderful.
1: She, she, hosted my first book talk, the, the launch of the new book at the Strand, which made me read the book. And I almost had time to be forced to read your book, but not quite. But I'm gonna. Um, but so I like you know I, I I read it over the course of like one week during the holidays when you could get a human break for five seconds in this country in this current cycle. And I just I loved, like she. It turns out that she, when I asked her to. She dinged me. She had someone handed her a, a draft of my the current the book that just came out of a collective bargain. I don't. She wasn't on any list of ours, right? Any early list that you would give it to. And I just out of a good reason for social media, which I otherwise hate. Uh, like I got DM'd. Now I know what that means. Direct messaged on Twitter, the only thing I do, by Astrid Taylor, saying someone handed me. Hey, I don't know you. Someone handed me a copy, dra- whatever the, the galleys of your book that's coming out, and I just want you to know. I think it's really, really good. And I was like, wow. What a nice message to get as opposed to go screw, you know, all the things that you can get. So and then like a week later, I was trying to figure out, like, who could who could like interview me on stage at the Strand Bookstore in New York for the book opening? And I thought, I don't know her, but she's wicked cool because I've already heard her, you know, several times some places. Sent her a note and I said, do you happen to be free on January whatever it was, 8th um, to like interview me on stage at the Strand? And she wrote back instantly. Hell, Yes. And then, of course, I often read that book. I'd already seen the film. I'd often read the book. And she intuitively understands. It's so funny, we didn't use this word the whole time. She intuitively understood from reading the book that everything I write about and everything democracy is about is about participation. And that what I'm teaching people to do is to participate in effective large numbers, because that's the only way change is going to happen. And so she and I didn't even meet until ten minutes before the book talk began at the Strand, and basically like had a love fest on stage. Um, so I'm, I'm digging that book, and now I'm talking to them about Strike Dead and some of the things that they're doing. But like, how do you actually make it meaningful? Um, but so that's another, that's a third book. But don't. But I've got The Light of Freedom by Charles Payne is so worth reading.
2: Jane McAlevey, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Thank you to Jane McAlevey. Um, I loved that. I hope you did as much as I did. Uh, Her new book is A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for Democracy. She's also the author of Raising Expectations and Raising Hell. And then I think of particular centrality to this conversation. Her book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. They are all very much worth reading. Thank you to Eric Johnson for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. Uh, thank you to all of you for being here. You can discuss it over at uh, the subreddit, which worked out real well last time, so I'll keep plugging it, which is reddit.com slash r slash Ezra Klein. Or you can, of course, email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Ezra Klein Show, as always, is a Vox Media podcast production.